Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is, of course, the 7th of September 20, yes, 21. We're going to continue uh, doing some basic biochemistry to lead to the finish of our discussion of aging and the immune system as a dialectical event ontology associated with morbidity and mortality in humans. So let's uh, go where we were last time. We were talking about how carbon is fluxed into gluconeogenesis and how this is a um, crown of intermediary metabolism. Obviously, when we talk about gluconeogenesis, we have to think about the reducing power necessary to drive electrons from NADH and FADH2 ultimately to molecular oxygen, to water, reducing it one electron at a time uh, via the electron transport chain in the intermitochondrial membrane. <clears throat> now, that's, that's potently significant because it's associated with beta-oxidation of fatty acids. Now, we talked about that not that long ago, and as much as I like to talk about lipid metabolism, and don't worry, I will uh, now and tomorrow and probably until my last days of lecturing. Uh, but right now, I'm just going to very, very briefly, almost uh, in a form of negligence, mention to you that fatty acids with an even number of carbons will go through beta oxidation. <clears throat> and you will get basically whatever that number of carbon atom is divided by two, that's the number of acetyl-CoA you will make. And the acetyl-CoA will either be completely oxidized to carbon dioxide or it will be used to generate ketone bodies. And remember, that's acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate and to some extent also acetone, although acetone isn't used because it's a volatile. So we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about other forms of metabolism. And for example, phytanic acid which is actually derived from chlorophyll. So chlorophyll is broken down into phytol. And phytol is reduced to dihydrophyol, which is now, which is then actually oxidized to phytanal, which is an aldehyde, as you can tell. And then one more time, it is oxidized to phytanic acid. That's one route. Another route is to go to phytenal, which have, of course, you have to erase that double bond eventually, but you're going to go ahead and oxidize it to phytenic acid, first make carboxylic acid, and then one more time oxidize it to phytanic acid. So what about this phytanic acid? Well, that, odd-chain fatty acids, which we can get from dairy foods and also from our own biosynthesis in our gut, plus the amino acids, valine, isoleucine, and even to some extent, cholesterol degradation will lead to the three-carbon propanyl-CoA. Propanyl-CoA can be converted to oxaloacetic acid and then to glucose. This is another gluconeogenic event. So if you think about some possible fate of three-carbon uh, compounds, hydrocarbons. Think about one propanol, which of course is an alcohol. It can be converted to a glucuronide, 
via the reaction of uh, UDPGA, which uses um, this glucuronic acid. And that enzyme is actually glucuronyl transferase. And uh, if you make a glucuronide, that will be eliminated. However, one propanol can also be converted to propanol propanol aldehyde. And that reaction is actually carried out by alcohol dehydrogenase. Um, and then you can take the uh, aldehyde, the propionaldehyde, and convert it to propionic acid. And that is the reaction of aldehyde dehydrogenase. We've talked about these in the past. Now, once you make the propionic acid, carboxylic acid, three-carbon compound, there's an enzyme, of course, uh, which will utilize ATP and reduce coenzyme A or free CoA, and it will produce propanyl-CoA. So that reaction, of course, would be uh, acyl-CoA synthetase because it needs ATP to generate then propanyl-CoA. Propanyl-CoA has a couple of different fates. One is it could be converted to propanyl-carnitine and then eliminated, and that reaction is from carnitine acyltransferase, yes, mitochondrial. Propanyl-CoA can also uh, react in propanyl-CoA carboxylase, making methylmalonyl-CoA. Methylmalonyl-CoA can be mutated to succinyl-CoA, then succinyl-CoA to succinate into the TCA cycle. It's one way to eliminate that carbon. Another reaction we don't hear much about is propanyl-CoA can be converted to acryl oil-CoA. Acryl-CoA can then be converted to L-lactoyl-CoA, then D-lactoyl-CoA, and then ultimately D-lactate, then to pyruvate, and then on to acetyl-CoA. It's one reaction that we don't normally think about. L-lactoyl-CoA can also lose coenzyme A and be converted to um, lactate, and that lactate then directly to pyruvate. That would be L-lactate to pyruvate. So both D-lactate and L-lactate can be converted to pyruvate, obviously through two different reactions. Um, the malonate semi-aldehyde, which would come from taking acryl oil-CoA and converting it to beta-hydroxypropanyl-CoA. So that intermediate can be converted once you remove the CoA, uh, directly to malonate semi-aldehyde. That malonate semi-aldehyde then can be reesterified to coenzyme A and B decarboxyl at the same time to make acetyl-CoA. Once again, going to the TCA cycle. So these are some of the reactions that can occur with three carbon alcohol, one propanol. Okay. So again, we're just filling in the gaps when we talk about coniogenesis, how you get there. Glycerol, which would come from triacylglycerol after the removal of the fatty acids, which will not, that carbon will not be used for gluconeogenesis. I told you that many times, at least not in mammals and not in animals in general, but the glycerol can, and this is the way it's done. You have an enzyme called glycerol kinase, obviously using ATP, you make glycerol 3-phosphate. We know that that can be directly uh, utilized again for lipogenesis. But you also have the glycerol 3-phosphodehydrogenase, which will generate an ADH, and then also dihydroxyacetone phosphate. And DHAP can be converted either to a half a molecule of glucose or directly to lactic acid, via pyruvate, obviously. So this is some of the ways you get glycerol converted to glucose. That's That's the main function of the pathway I just mentioned to you. 
We talked about fructose itself. Remember, fructose is half of the disaccharide of sucrose, which you get from plants, right? So just fruit juice and fruits in general. You're taking in sucrose. And there's an enzyme which will break that disaccharide to glucose and fructose. So free fructose will be phosphorylated via fructokinase. Fructokinase, remember, makes fructose 1-phosphate, which will go through an unusual aldolase. That aldolase will make simply glyceraldehyde and dihydroxyacetone phosphate. The glyceraldehyde then can be phosphorylated to glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, which is the um, probably well-recognized glycolysis intermediate. You know that DHAP and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate can be interconverted, and both uh, both of them, therefore, can be used to make glucose. The glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate can also, of course, go to pyruvate and pyruvate then to lactate. So this is how you take fructose and turn it into glucose, okay, by, via that aldolase B. That's the, uh, that's the rare or unusual uh, enzymatic component. I shouldn't say rare. It simply means it's not in the normal flush of biochemistry, right? All right. So D-glucose also can be converted to sorbitol, um, and that will require NADPH. When you make D-sorbitol, it will then react with uh, oxidized nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, and it will directly form fructose plus NADH. This is another way of converting uh, sugars from one metabolic pathway into another. Glucose to sorbitol, sorbitol to fructose, right? So you get an idea of these interconversions and they, of course, occur. Now, rather than going through the entire gluconeogenic pathway, which is based, many of the reactions are indeed just a reverse of glycolysis. I'm going to just take you through the allostatic regulation of it. So if you start with lactate, lactate to pyruvate, um, pyruvate, of course, can be used in the pyruvate carboxylase reaction to make oxaloacetic acid. This is a really critical reaction, of course, for gluconeogenesis, specifically when uh, oxalacetic acid is produced in the cytosol, where gluconeogenesis occurs. Now, that reaction, right, the pyruvate carboxylase, is positively allosterically regulated by acetyl-CoA. It's negatively regulated by ATP and by alanine. Alanine is a precursor to pyruvate, of course, but it is positively activated by fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. Remember, when that builds up, that means that aldolase A is not functioning. And because of that, when it's building up, that means that rather than running glycolysis, you actually are in the buconeogenic mode. Okay, So pyruvate then can be converted um, to phosphoenolpyruvate, and it does so via OAA. So pyruvate to oxalacetic acid, I told you how that's regulated, both at the level of ATP, alanine, negatively, and then positively by acetyl-CoA fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. But once you make OAA, here's the other really important gluconeogenic enzyme, which allows it to escape the thermodynamics of the pyruvate dehydrogenase reaction, indeed, and this reaction is PEP carboxykinase, or phosphonylpyruvate carboxykinase. Now that will take GTP and convert OAA to phosphoenolpyruvate, but it's also decarboxylating. So OAA will be decarboxylated to PEP. 
That's the really important enzyme that circumvents the negative thermodynamics otherwise developed by PDH. Once you make PEP, you can make fructose-1,6-bisphosphate, again, just by running back uh, through gluconeogenesis. No regulation there of anything to speak of. But then fructose-1,6-bisphosphate to fructose-6-phosphate is heavily allosterically regulated. Of course it is. We went through it already. So AMP is a negative allosteric effector. Fructose-2,6-bisphosphate, recall, is a negative allosteric effector. And positive effectors include, um, uh, the, for the reverse reaction, for fructose-6-phosphate to fructose-1,6-phosphate, AMP positively regulates that, as does fructose-2,6-bisphosphate. So that's how you can see the diametrically imposed, yes, not contrarian, that is indeed a contradiction, but it's not a futile cycle because you have other allosteric regulators besides just the dynamic flux and flush through the pathway. Uh, being juxtaposed because of the substrate concentrations versus product concentrations in those reactions and gluconeogenesis, which are fully reversible. But keep in mind that the fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is eliminated uh, again, uh, and, and this is this can be directly the cause by glucagon, remember, uh, flipping the PFK2 to the FPPase pathway. And so, but also you eliminate fructose-2,6-bisphosphate, so it's not an allosteric positive effect of PFK1. Anyways, in the final result, what you get is fructose-6-phosphate. Then I summarize the glucose-6-phosphate. And because you have a glucose-6-phosphatase, which we've already discussed in the liver and in the kidney to a lesser degree, you'll make free glucose. This is all happening actually in the lumen of the ER, plasma reticulum. That glucose will then be uh, secreted out of the uh, hepatocyte and go directly into the bloodstream. So this is the process of gluconeogenesis from lactate. And now you know the major allosteric regulation of that pathway. I want you to recall that glucagon, when it binds to its receptor in the uh, plasma membrane, it's also related to a transcriptional control of the PEP carboxykinase. This is one, at least one case, and there's many others we can talk about where there is transcriptional control in mammals. Often it's post-translational where you get a lot of heavy-duty metabolic control, and this, of course, is allostericism. Here is glucagon, recognizing low blood glucose, um, binds its receptor. Remember, you have a G-stimulatory protein, which is shown to denylate cyclase, which will make cyclic AMP, which will positively regulate protein kinase A. But here... The substrate for PKA, rather than discussion of the PFK2 pathway, uh, which will convert it to the bisphosphatase, here PKA has a substrate also in the nucleus, and that's the CREB. That's the cyclic AMP response element binding protein. CREB will be phosphorylated to CREB phosphate, and that's a positive transcriptional control at the level of chromatin remodeling, binding to the CRE, C-R-E, which is a promoter region for genes which are controlled by cyclic AMPs. CRE stands for cyclic AMP response element, which is, of course, a DNA element, promoter region. And the promoter region we're talking about here is carboxykinase. This is how you get transcriptional control from glucagon binding to the receptor through adenylate cyclase, through protein kinase, through phosphorylation of CREB, and ultimately CREB binding to CRE, and CRE being promoted, you get chromatin remodeling, 
and you get transcription of pepcarboxykinase. This is again a hepatic phenomenon that is coming from gluconeogenesis generated in the liver. Um, okay, there's a lot of other things to consider here. One is storage glycogen, which is a polymer of glucose. Glycogen is alpha 1,4 glycosidic linkages, and then periodically having branches of alpha 1,6 glycosidic linkages. The numbering there has to do with the numbering on the glucose molecule. So you have alpha 1,4s and you have alpha 1,6s, which are the branches in glycogen. Glycogen can be stored in the skeletal muscle. It can also be stored quite significantly in the liver. So glycogen is highly branched. And of course, glycogen levels will fluctuate during the day, depending on when one consumes food. So liver glycogen content tends to be high in the early morning. It lowers midday, stays low throughout the afternoon, and then has a huge increase again. This is usually because of dietary intake. This is humans. The increase in glycogen stores since tends to diminish again by the time the next day occurs and breakfast is consumed. Glycogen levels go back up and then you follow again this uh, diurnal fluctuation. So that's the liver glycogen content. So glycogenolysis um, is when you degrade glycogen for gluconeogenesis. So you have glycogen, which will be reacted to reacted with by glycogen phosphorylase, making glucose 1-phosphate. That will be, of course, mutased to glucose 6-phosphate, and then directly via the phosphatase synthesizing glucose for secretion for gluconeogenesis. Now, depending on what is going on, glycogen can also be utilized, for example, in the muscle, but also in the liver to some extent. Uh, glucose 6-phosphate via glycolysis to pyruvate, Pyruvate then directly acetyl-CoA because of the PDH reaction that's decarboxylating, as you know. And acetyl-CoA ultimately completely oxidizes that carbon from glucose to carbon dioxide. And then the electrons being driven into molecular oxygen to synthesize water. And in that entire mode, you reduce any DNFADH2, which get re-oxidized in the mitochondrial membrane. And you make, of course, ATP, right? So this is how glycogen can be used in the liver uh, and it's very common, very common occurrence for glycogen levels to increase and decrease again in that diurnal um, modality that we just talked about. So you have glycogen phosphorylase function. You also have the enzyme called the glycogen debranching enzyme, which basically just cuts the branches off of that highly branched alpha one six one four um, polyglucose. Uh, glycan, known as glycogen. Glycogen is just like starch, only amylose, amylopectin, and starch has, has different types of branching strategies uh, than glycogen does. It's the same kind of branching, though. So, again, another fate uh, for uh, glycogenesis now, when we talk about another fate for glucose, I mean, again, in the liver and in the muscle, glucose can be converted to glucose 6 phosphate once it's taken up. And then phosphoglucomutase will convert to glucose 1-phosphate. Then it will become a nucleotide sugar called UDP glucose. Uh, and that's carried out, the glucose 1-phosphate to UDP glucose carried out by an enzyme called glucose 1-phosphate uridyl transferase, which takes UTP, converts it 
to the UDP glucose plus PPI, which is hydrolyzed to 2PI, which drives the reaction. It's actually the substrate UDP glucose, which is going to be used for glycogen synthase to make glucose N go to glucose N plus one. This is how you add individual glucose residues um, to the polymer, the polyglycan, which will end up being uh, glycogen. And that's carried out by an enzyme called glycogen synthase, which utilizes that nucleotide sugar. So um, you have glycogen synthase. And then, of course, when you're an anabolic like this, you have to have the branching enzyme, not debranching. So glycogen synthase will keep on adding glucoses one at a time, one at a time to alpha 1,4. And then ultimately, you'll get UDP glucose, which will be used to make a branch. And it's going to be an alpha 1,6 linkage. Right? And that's going to be produced by the enzyme called the branching enzyme. So you make the alpha 1,4 and then periodically inundated with alpha 1,6 branched linkages. The original reaction for glycogen synthesis actually starts off with a protein called glycogenin, and it's self-glucosylating, and it takes actually eight total UDP glucoses. And of course, UDP is generated, and what result of that uh, is eight glucose molecules bound as an oxygen ester to tyrosine, and that will be your primed glycogenin. Prime glycogenin then is the true substrate for glycogen synthase and branching enzyme. There's where you start utilizing the individual, basically N UDP glucose molecules, making N number of UDP plus glucose N alpha 1,4 and alpha 1,6 linkages, still all associated with that tyrosine residue. And we call that the glycogenin-glycogen complex. So you start off bound to that polypeptide, that tyrosine residue on that polypeptide, okay? And, that, and glycogenin basically is the primer for glycogen synthesis, just so you understand that. So again, you have alpha-1,4 linkages, and they're joined two, change, two, two particular chains of polyglycan, and that's at a branch point. But most of the residues in glycogen are joined by that alpha 1 4 linkage. So you have to have an enzyme which will break down alpha 1 4. And of course, you do. That's again the glycogen phosphorylase. So, a little bit about the regulation of glycogen phosphorylase by glycogen, uh, by, excuse me, by covalent modification. Um, Glucagon and epinephrine, of course, you recall, will produce cyclic AMP via adenylate cyclase. Cyclic AMP, also recall, is a positive allosteric effector of protein kinase A. That will take the enzyme known as glycogen phosphorylase kinase B and convert it to glycogen phosphorylase kinase A. That phosphorylase kinase A, which is now phosphorylated because of glucagon and epinephrine turning on cyclic AMP, activating protein kinase A. That phosphorylase A, which is phosphorylated, right? That's going to take the enzyme glycogen phosphorylase, not the phosphorylase kinase, but the enzyme glycogen phosphorylase B, and convert it to glycogen phosphorylase A, okay? And that's going to be the functional enzyme, okay? So that's the way you make 
the most active form of glycogen phosphorylase. Insulin will work in just the other way. It'll take glycogen phosphorylase kinase A, which is phosphorylated, and dephosphorylated. That means the entire process then will convert back to non-phosphorylated glycogen phosphorylase, also known as phosphorylase B, right? So insulin functions to also activate the phosphoprotein phosphatase, which will take glycogen phosphorylase A and convert it back to the non-phosphorylated form. This sounds very similar to PFK because it is very similar in terms of allosteric regulation. Uh, comparing glucagon and epinephrine, viz insulin, right, versus insulin. And insulin, of course, positive allosteric effector for the protein phos phosphoprotein phosphatase. It's cyclic AMP having just the opposite effect on the phosphoprotein phosphatase, thus maintaining phosphorylase A for glycogen phosphorylation, uh, glycogen phosphorylase activity generating free glucose. Glycogen synthase also has a, a series of uh, component regulatory uh, systems, calcium, calmodulin-dependent protein kinase, calcium phosphorylase-dependent phosphorylase kinase, Diacylglycerol protein kinase C, and all of those will trigger glycogen synthase A being converted to glycogen synthase B. Okay, glucose 6-phosphate is an allosteric activator also of glycogen synthase B. Glycogen synthase B can be converted back to its non-phosphorylated form. You just phosphorylated it, uh, and that could be converted back to its non-active to the glycogen synthase A via the activity of insulin. So that promotes glycogen synthase A, the non-phosphorylated form. And cyclic AMP would be negatively affecting that. Now there, obviously, the non-phosphorylated glycogen synthase, also known as glycogen synthase A, will be the one that is functional at glycogen synthesis, right? Because insulin will induce glycogen synthesis whereas cyclic A and P will inhibit glycogen synthesis because of its, its own synthesis via adenylate cyclase because of things like glucagon and epinephrine. All right, so, so there is a cyclic A and P-dependent protein kinase A, which, of course, will inactivate the phosphatase. Thus, it will inhibit glycogen synthesis, and that's basically how it works, right? All right. So... Not much else to say about glycogen metabolism. Um, I'll just briefly go one time more with this whole uh, phosphorylase. There's, you have, of course, a T or inactive form, and you have an R or relaxed active form. The T form can be directly converted to the R form, which is phosphorylase B, just simply by high levels of AMP. The phosphorylase B, uh, the relaxed active form, can also be directly converted to the T form ten, or tense form, which is inactive. Remember, we're talking about the glycogen phosphorylase here. And that could be done by ATP and or, that means also in combination with, or by itself, glucose 6-phosphate. Right? Either one of those will act allosterically to make the phosphorylase uh, inactive. So you have the T form of the uh, of the enzyme, which can be then activated outright by the phosphorylase kinase we just talked about. Remember, it was regulated by insulin, glucagon, epinephrine, right? And that kinase then will make um, the phosphorylated enzyme, uh, and then that will spontaneously 
form phosphorylase A. So there's two different ways to make the, uh, the active form, the R form. One is directly from the T form inactive by AMP addition, which signals, of course, that ATP has been used, right? And so you need to make a lot of glucose because you need to make, use glucose to make ATP. So when AMP builds up, ATP and ADP drop. That means directly going from inactive glycogen phosphorylase to active phosphorylase B, but also through all of that hormonal regulation, insulin glucagon being working in a, a contradictory mode there, and using glycogen phosphorylase kinase. Remember, you make the phosphorylated form of the inactive form, which spontaneously is converted to phosphorylase A. Now, that phosphorylase A phosphorylated will also go back to the relatively inactive T form still phosphorylated just by high levels of glucose that would directly inhibit the phosphor glycogen phosphorylase because glucose is building up. See, so that would be a feedback inhibition because that's the product of the reaction. So now you understand the entire phosphorylation system. Okay. All right. Oh, I think we're pretty much finished with this uh, series of reactions. I think we can, we can, pose the question that we're at the level of understanding a little bit of allosteric in intermediary metabolism. I spent the last what, three lectures, I think at least, on carbohydrate metabolism, because that's where it's canonically taught in biochemistry class. There's obviously allosteric regulation in lipid metabolism and in nucleotide metabolism. So you have all the major organic compounds and their biosynthetic pathways under heavy-duty allosteric control. We just use carbohydrates because it's been used canonically. I'm going to stop here because I'm out of time. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, uh, on the 7th of September, saying bye for now.